Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Lupercalia Art Society. I'm your host, Susan Ferguson, and in this, our first show, I'll be talking with two of the artists who make Lupercalia such a vivacious and welcoming space, Trey Oliver and Maggie Simsky. I'm also joined today by co-host Joe Gaston, who is a local educator and musician and whose support has made this possible. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure for us to be here. Well, it's good to have you guys here. Now, I want to start by giving credit where credit is due. Joe, tell us a little bit about what you do, your vocal arts, as well as how the studio came about. Oh, I like that. You said vocal arts. I like that. <laughs> So, well, the studio is here at the University of South Alabama. We're in the College of Education and Professional Studies, and I have been hosting a podcast with uh, my co-host, Julie Neidhart. She and I have been colleagues for many, many years, and we started a podcast with the Mobile County Public School System back in April of 2020, and that's called Next in Ed, and we wanted to capture stories Really, we started it right when the pandemic hit. And so we wanted to capture these stories as it was un- unfolding because we knew what was next in Ed was what was happening right then was the pandemic. So sure. we're now up to, I think, episode 82 or wow. something like that. So we've been doing it for a while. And uh, I guess the, the college caught wind of that podcast and asked if I would help put together a studio here in the college. And so I was like, well, if you let me pick out the equipment, that sounds like a great deal. Yeah. So they did. And so we've, we have, have launched a podcast series here at the college called Sincerely South, which you know a little bit about. Right, yeah. And um, so that's where we are today is in this studio here. But uh, on the musician side, uh, a different world for me, um, I guess I started singing in bands when I was 13. It's my first time on stage, I think, and spent many, many years uh, playing music with my brother, uh, all original music and doing uh, metal has been my background since I was very young and got back into it uh, about four years ago. I think I took a, in my adult life, I only, I went seven years without playing in a band and that was it. And so now I'm back into it. I've been doing that for a while again, actually in two bands at the moment. Because, you know, why not? Why not? I don't know how you <laughs> so, do it all. but <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot to juggle, but um, it's been a lot of fun. And I'm excited to, to be here today to talk about everything that's going on uh, downtown and with everything that we've got going on with this speakeasy and everything that goes along with it. So thanks for letting me join Absolutely. in today for this uh, inaugural episode. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, with that, let's talk about... Lupercalia and the Speakeasy. And Trey, why don't you give us a little bit of history about uh, the name of Lupercalia, how it got its name, and about the building? Well, f- first of all, uh, Maggie's mother, Amy, uh, came to me a couple of years ago, about three years ago, and said that um, she understood that we were about to be a bunch of homeless artists because we were at the Cathedral Square Art right. Gallery for. A number of years. Uh, it was a total run of 26 years. Uh, Linda Tenningfield and, and some others did a remarkable job of, of managing that gallery. They were called Cathedral Square Art Gallery because they were initially located at the Cathedral Square. And then uh, a number of years later, they relocated across from Winslow's there on Dolphin Street. So I was there for about four years, and downtown was beginning to prosper. And any time that a section of uh, town prospers the first people that can't afford to be there anymore are the artists and we were outpriced we were paying a reasonable sum of money per month on a year-to-year basis and the owner of the building finally said you know what i'm gonna do something a little different with this building so we went month to month and finally he just said i really want y'all out of here so all of a sudden 36 artists were without a gallery and the interesting thing is that building is still empty after almost three years, but uh, that's none of my business. And it's so, laugh every time I see it. Yeah, and so Amy came up to me. She said, "Trey, I understand you're going to open up your own gallery." And I said, "Well, me and this other artist are certainly going to do something." And she said, "Well, I don't know anything about art. I'm an accountant, but I love art." And I said, "Well, I know nothing about running a business." So we made an excellent. Uh, business partnership she said my only caveat is you must 
relocate or stay downtown. I said, well, that's impossible. We can't afford anything downtown. And she said, give me two weeks. And a week later, she found this building that had been empty for 32 years. Most locals would remember the building as being the old John Words restaurant back in the day. And we walked in that building. The front doors were boarded up, had been for 30-some-odd years. There was no electricity, no utilities, no flooring, nothing. Just an empty, stinky, dark building. And I thought maybe she had lost her mind when, she, <laughs> when we walked in there with a the real estate agent. But the more we time we spent in there. Maggie, were you there that first day? I was not there the first day. I came after we opened. It's, I helped set up for everything. You know, Maggie manages the gallery for us and does a remarkable job. It's, it's not easy keeping 90-something artists satisfied, much less happy, but Maggie does a stupendous, uh, just a stupendous job of doing that. So, um, and we noticed there was something underneath the flooring, and I looked to the real estate agent, and I said, what, what's that down there? And he nonchalantly said, oh, well, you wouldn't be interested in that. I said, well, we might try us. He said, well, that's just an old tunnel. That was his quote, just an old tunnel. Wow. Well, we were already just enamored <laughs> by the by the uh the old building. I mean, the building was built in 1851 and it had all that exposed brick. I mean, it just screamed art gallery. And the, the owner who lives in Australia is from London. He bought the building back in 2007, but it kept it vacant until he found the right um, tenant. So I said, well, I would love to take a look downstairs. And he said, well, come back in a couple of days and I'll have the contractors tear a hole out for you. So your, your Maggie's mom and I went back a couple of days later, and sure enough, he literally had just a hole for me to crawl into. It was boarded up. It was boarded up, yes. It was, the whole thing was boarded up. I never knew that. Yeah, it was. It had been for, for decades. So I had my my hat on and my, sun, my uh, flashlight feature on my phone and crawling into this tunnel. I felt like Indiana Jones on the History Channel <laughs> because it was cobwebs. There were rochets running about. There was all sorts of critters running around, and I was screaming like a girl half the time. It was dark. It was dungy. It smelled bad. And I, I hollered up to him. I said, how much more per month do you want for this section? He said, he threw out a price. I said, we're poor artists. We can't afford that. <laughs> and so he came down a little bit. So the amazing thing is, is, is thanks to Amy, Maggie's mother, she was able to broker us a deal where we were paying like $1,000 less per month for this building than what we were paying up at the Cathedral Square what? Art Gallery. You're yeah. kidding. No, I'm not. And, wow. And so it was just amazing. It was just, you know, it seemed like a little divine intervention at the time, to be honest with you. I mean, a bean counter and a jail warden coming together <laughs> to open a gallery. Just, it's, it's, it's not your typical story. So Amy and I, and, and I, I counted on her to, to count the beans, and I said, and I showed her the books we had at Cathedral Square Art Gallery, and she said, Trey, if, if we can come up with 34 artists, I think we'll be okay. I said, okay, that's great. Well, today, Maggie, how many artists do we have? We've got a little under 90. Wow. We're not quite to 90, but we're not far from it. And one of our founding members said, we don't want to be just a gallery. We want to create an art community. And we've done that. Certainly uh, have. Yeah, it's, it's called Lupercalia Art Society, and we get more into the, the name Lupercalia in a few seconds. But um, what we've created is we've created a collective of eclectic people from all walks of life, from across the country, from Hawaii to Tampa, Florida. Most of our artists are local, but not all of them. And uh, I walked into my friend's gallery, uh, Kelly, with, um, I'm sorry, yeah, Kim, Kim Kelly, Kim Kelly with uh, Sophiella Art Gallery downtown. And I walked in one day before Amy and I had opened, and, and she looked at me and she said, I don't even want to talk to you, Trey Oliver. You're opening up your own gallery. And I said, <laughs> well, I said, hang on a second, Kim. I said, you're a fine art gallery. I said, you know, you have a beautiful art gallery here. I said, now we're going to have some fine art, but we're going to have some edgy, quirky, provocative um inappropriate art we're going to have a little bit of everything <laughs> from all sorts of um, artists and that's what we've done is we've created this collective of artists from uh, an 18 year old who's been attending south for a couple of years to someone who was in a coma for a month and a half because of an abusive domestic violence relationship who 
now is an artist. We have people who are artistic. We have people who are recovering addicts. And we have just, if there is such a thing, normal people, people that live in the middle of the road. And we feed off of each other. We inspire each other. We encourage each other. So it's just been a success. Well, I'm excited because we're going to have some of those artists in each month to feature their art and let them talk about what inspires them and why they do the art they do. That's great. It's going to make some for some amazing episodes because there's some amazing stories out there. We, in, in my line of work, I've been in public safety since 1975, and other than maybe being uh, uh, burned out and emotionally bankrupt at this point in my career, this has given me a chance to see a lot of people from many walks of life that I never would have come in contact with otherwise. It's rewarding when you work in the gallery on a Saturday, especially after Art Walk, you will have people walk in from Chicago, from uh, Nevada, from New Orleans, from Dolphin Island, from, from Wilmer and Pritchard. I mean, you just name it, the whole gamut, all different socioeconomic levels. And it's, it's really amazing because all these people come into one spot that they normally would not be even sitting at the same table at the same time, but it's all in the name of art. I love that. That's beautiful. Yes, I like Unity that. in the name of art. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to learn how Lupercalia got its name. Visit Lupercalia Art Society and Underground Speakeasy in the heart of downtown Mobile. Located at 358 Dolphin Street, Lupercalia features over 80 regional artists. There is literally something for every taste. So if you're looking for a unique gift for a friend or something special for your own space, stop by Lupercalia. More than an art gallery, we are an underground art society with a speakeasy available for rental. And be sure to visit us during Art Walk every second Friday evening of the month when you can meet some of our artists and share in the Southern spirit that is Lupercalia. Society is home to a monthly poetry open mic held in the underground speakeasy. Join local poets of all levels of experience as we share our writing. Feel free to read your original pieces or your poetry from your favorite authors. Everyone feels welcome and supported when they share their writing at Lupercalia. Check out our Facebook page for dates and times. We are with Trey Oliver and Maggie Simsky of Lupercalia Art Society today. And Trey, why don't you tell us how Lupercalia got its name? Okay, well, you know, we're very proud Mobilians. We love Mobile's 320 years of, uh, of history and, you know, how we are a melting pot of cultures from the get-go. And a lot, so much of that is, is obvious downtown from the architecture and, and so forth. So we were looking for something that had some connections with Mobile, something that was a little um, mysterious and something a little bizarre. So I don't remember what chain of events I was Googling, but I came across 
the Lupercalia Pagan Festival that goes back several thousands, several thousands of years. And what little bit of written history remains is that uh, once a year in the month of February, these two tribes of priests would get together. And this was way before Rome was a city. And these two uh, tribes would go into a cave and start a fire. And sacrifice was still big back then. And they would sacrifice a goat and a little puppy. A lot of people cringe <laughs> when I say the little puppy. But from what I've read, little puppies represents, represented brotherly love back in the day. And so they would sacrifice this goat, and they would uh, the two priests, one from either tribe, were required to disrobe, and they were required to fashion loincloths out of the goat hide, and then the remainder of the goat hide would be made into these thongs. And alcohol was obviously involved. At some point. <laughs> and so. They would take their bloody knives and they were required to smother or smear blood on their faces and laugh. And it was required that they laugh. Maybe that's where the alcohol came in. I don't know, but <laughs> sounds like a dangerous thing. So then they would light their torches and it was always at night. So that adds to the mystique. And these two tribes of priests would parade from village to village with these torches lit with these two enamored uh, half-naked priest with goat thongs. Now, that doesn't sound like a recipe for disaster. I don't know what does. Now, if you put your your hats on, your historical hats on, what was the most important thing, Susan or Joe, back in thousands of years ago? What was real important to tribes and villages of people? Wow. Just basic survival. I mean, you need shelter, you need stuff to Maybe eat. Maybe shelter, children. you need food, and you need children. And you, you need children. Have children. You've <laughs> got to propagate the herd, right? That's right. So um, they believed in demons back then. Or I guess people still do. So these priests would go out there. Now, we don't know. We don't have any recordings of what the blessings were, but they would, and maybe they didn't use the word blessing, but the priests would go out there and bless the shepherds tending to their goats and their, their sheep from the, from the evil she-goat I don't know why they said she-goat, but that's what they said, evil she-goat. <laughs> and, of course, you know, the, the keeping the herds alive and safe from the wolves was, was a big deal. So, and Lupercalia, in fact, is a spinoff of the word wolf. And then they would go back to the villages where the women were, and women who were of the fertile ages wanted to be fertile. I mean, that again, that was, that was how things sure. continued. The men would be out there protecting the herd, bringing in the meat, and women would be having the babies. So uh, the women who wanted to be fertile would raise up their dress and turn around and expose their bottom side to the tribe of priests who would come along with these goat thongs and tap them on the back ever so lightly, and that was supposed to make them fertile. Now, who in hell came up with this to begin with? I don't know. It, I think they were smoking something besides alcohol. So obviously this continued to get out of hand, and as, as most things do. And um, the uh, Pope heard about it about the year 500 and said, okay, this has got to stop. This has got to really, we got to curtail all this mischievous behavior. So he said, you all can party for about a week, but that's going to be it. And then after that, you've got to start preparing for Easter. So what does that sound like? Sounds like Mardi Gras. Uh, sounds like Mardi Gras, doesn't it? Because you got the, bad behavior and you've got adults <laughs> overindulging and and you got the religious overtones so um and then of course we all know that uh once rome became a city and the, uh, the symbol or, or the the uh, tradition that uh, how rome got its name was from the two brothers romulus and remus who were uh, suckled by the uh, she-wolf and um Romulus killed Remus, and that's why we call it Rome instead of Reem. <laughs> and so that you know, so now Rome's a town, right? Well, who was one of the greatest leaders in Rome? Caesar. There's Caesar, right? And have we ever heard of the Ides of March? Absolutely, absolutely. So who was who was running naked through the streets of Rome, presenting a crown to Caesar? Do we remember? 
I should remember from Shakespeare, but I don't. Yeah. So Anthony. <laughs> is that right? Am I saying his, what was Anthony. his full name though? Anthony. 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 Thank you. So Anthony would run through the streets of uh, Rome naked during the festival of Lupercalia, and he presented the crown, which back then was what a set of laurel. A, a laurel wreath, which is what our icon is. We have a laurel wreath with a gas lamp in the middle. And the reason why we had a gas lamp is because we have four gas lamps out in front of the gallery. So uh, Antony would present Caesar with the laurel wreath, and being the consummate politician, Caesar declined being the sole ruler, although we know he really was. And then we all know that this was in the eyes of February, and then in the eyes of March, we all know what happened to Caesar, right? <laughs> so there's there's intrigue, there's murder, there's mystery, there's alcohol, there's adultery. I mean, all sorts of things. We said this would be a perfect foundation <laughs> to start a a group of quirky people, and and we have a we have a toast. We we pride ourselves on being Mob Town's only underground art society gallery and speakeasy. And Maggie, Maggie. Talk more about the speakeasy here in a second, but our toast goes like this: We're not the Big Apple, we're not even the Big Easy, we're just a little quirky without being sleazy. So that's what we are. We're, <laughs> we're quirky, but we're not sleazy. And and we invite new artists, emerging uh, aspiring artists, to come and to join our ranks and be a resident artist with us. Wow, I you know I did not know that entire history of the name. I knew a little bit about it. Because I Googled it. You tell it so much better than Google. <laughs> You'll never hear it better than he tells it. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Great story. So, Maggie, you are on the business side of things. Yes. Tell us a little bit about, about that, how, how people can support the gallery. and. So, we are always taking new local artists of Mobile, wherever you're from, just come join us. Um, we work off of a rental basis. Um, we're, like I said, we're always taking new people. We always accept donations. You can support local artists and rent them spaces on our wall. You can rent the facility out for events, local um, parties, things like that. We've got a few coming up in the next month or so. So we're always looking for new fun things to bring in and new fun businesses to collaborate with so we can host fun parties. We've got... Um, a drag makeup tutorial coming up in July. We also have open mic night every third Friday of the month through October. So um, just anybody, you're welcome to come and host a party. We're always looking for fun things to do. Art Walk is always a big event for us. I'm trying to think of what else there is. It's a great venue for all of those things. It's, we've it done is. weddings. We've done birthdays. We've done some afterlife celebrations even. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Nice. We've done a little bit of everything. Um, we always have a local band for Art Walk. We always try to serve some good complimentary cocktails and have local artists join us and things like that. So, Yeah, Art Walk is, of course, we all know is sponsored by the City of Mobile and the Mobile Arts Council. And that's the second Friday of every month. And the weather's permitting, as Maggie just said, we try to have our five or six-piece jazz band called the Claiborne Combo out front. And they are really, really talented and uh, they give us a, a nice price break because in Mobile, Alabama, you can't make a, much of a living by selling art. So they, they give us a nice price break, and it, they put on a great show every art walk, again, the second Friday of the month. And, you know, Maggie mentioned the venue rentals. One thing that's so uh, attractive about our venue is that it's one of the oldest commercial buildings in Mobile. Uh, we all know about the history of Mobile when the mayor surrendered the city and the the Yankees came in and said, uh, Mr. Mayor, we're going to occupy your city until the end of the war. In the meantime, we need you to gather all your ammunition, gunpowder, and cannonballs and put in this magazine, which was a, which is an old word for a warehouse. And, of course, the Confederate Army had retreated to Jackson, Mississippi, and the uh, mayor told all the citizens to carry out the uh, orders of the, the U.S. Army. And on day number three, I think, of collecting all the explosives in the city, uh, something happened, and it, the magazine blew up, killed 330-some-odd people, oxen, goats, and so forth. <laughs> and what the, uh, the building, what the explosion didn't blow up, the, f the um, 
subsequent fire burned down a lot of the business district, but our building is, is one of the few blocks that survived. So it's one of the oldest, not the oldest, but one of the oldest commercial buildings in Mobile. So it was built in 1852. Uh, it was purchased from the Duval estate, a Spanish uh, family. And it, the Spanish cemetery was also close to that area. And there's a lot of ghost stories and other uh, historical facts about our building that we can mention later, but it's just a beautiful building. It is it's two stories, and it makes a great, great uh, setting for a, a, a baby shower, a wedding party, or, or just whatever. It is. It's a lovely space. It's a great. It's a great venue for open mic, and you guys have invited us to do we open love mic poetry open there, mic. and it is fantastic. It's such a great space, and I'm going to do an ad for that in just a little bit, so people Super. will know where to come and when to come to open mic. But before we get any further, I'd like for you guys to talk a little bit about your art. I don't think we can end this episode without hearing a little bit about what you do. I'm one of the minimalists. I'm not an artist per se. I make candles. We have your candles in our house. (laughs) Thank you for your support. (laughs) I do uh, candles and body scrubs and things like that. Um, As far as painting, I have no painting creativity (laughs) in my body. Um, But I can make a good candle. I can make a good sugar scrub. But Trey... um, He's one of my favorite artists with his driftwood pieces and the shells and the oyster shells he uses. It's my favorite. Thank you, Maggie. Well, my story is I'm a late bloomer and um, as a child spending the summers on Dolphin Island, you just fall in love with the Gulf of Mexico and Mobile Bay and so forth. And uh, I have a very stressed, my day job is, is extremely stressful. And my golf swing sucks and <laughs> drinking is too expensive. So you got to find a way to take the edge off. So one day um, I was on a vacation during Mardi Gras, as a matter of fact, on uh, the Bon Secure Bay, Fort Morgan. And I got in my kayak and went and for the first time in my life started collecting driftwood. I've always been uh, uh, impressed with driftwood. It's, it's amazing what Mother Nature can design uh, on her own. Uh, thanks to high tides and strong currents and wind and decay. And I, I gathered a, a kayak full of driftwood and I took it back home at the end of my vacation. And it sat there for a little bit. And next thing I knew, a year later, I had about 53 assemblages of uh, driftwood. And my bug man's coming through one day in my house and he said, Trey, your art's really starting to pick up. Well, I never even thought about it as being art. It was just a hobby. And I said, well, well, thank you. He said, hell, I wouldn't mind having some of this in my house. And I said, well, I'll take that as a compliment. So I went and got me a big straw hat and a pair of dark sunglasses. <laughs> and I actually took my art to the corner right there at the cathedral, right across from where the gallery is today. And I was a street artist for about three years. And that first night, I was scared to death. My palms were sweating. I was trembling because you, if you, if you're not an artist, if you've never created something, put it out there for ridicule, for criticism, or for consumption, you have no idea the feeling of vulnerability that exists. And and so I had the dark glasses and the hat on because I didn't want anybody to recognize me. And I stood across the street. And after about the first 20 minutes, I was ready to hang myself because nobody was stopping and looking at, at my three tables of art. And then all of a sudden, the first person stopped, and the second person stopped, and then people started stopping and touching it. And that's and I'm not a salesman, but when they touched it, I, I felt like that was a sign. So I'd walk up, and I would say something artsy, like, is something speaking to you? And <laughs> they would say, yes, it is. And are you the artist? And I would say, well, that depends on if you like it or not. If, it's, if it does, you don't like it, I'm not. But... Um, and then after, by the time the night was up, was over with, I take my, took my hat off my sunglasses and I sort of got used to that feeling of possible rejection at any given moment. And, and I sold 12 pieces of art that night. So I felt like I'd won an Emmy. That's incredible. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it was because no formal training and, you know, I was 50 something years old. So that's how I got into it. And then after doing art walk for three years of putting up with the bitter cold and the, the sultry hot i said i'm gonna find me a gallery to and then i joined the cathedral square art gallery and i was there for a number four uh, four years it was so funny my first painting i was i'm not making this up i'm driving by towards my house one day and in front of murphy high school someone had emptied an office and there was an old canvas painting out there and i had always just done driftwood up to that point 
And I said, I'm going to get that canvas and I'm going to paint it. So I got that canvas and, and I painted it. And it was pretty archaic looking, I thought, a little folksy. It looked like a, a band of praying mantis marching on Mobile. And there was explosions of azaleas and camellias in the air. I mean, it was pretty far out there. And I'll be darned, I put that thing on an easel, and within 20 minutes, I sold it. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, this is this is fun. You know, I mean, you feel validated. You feel, you right. feel, you know, when someone touches something that you enjoy, they get something out of it. Even if they get a different meaning, it's just it's therapeutic. I mean, and, and when I lock myself in the in the uh, studio at home to paint or or whatever, you lose track of time. Your your sister artist, you know the feeling. And um, I mean, I think everybody's an artist. To be honest with you, I think anybody can create anything they they set their mind to. It's just a matter of setting your mind to it. That's very inspirational. Well, thank you. I think so too. I think I think uh, one thing about visiting the gallery, and of course, you were talking about Art Walk. But anytime that the doors open, it's just you can get lost in there, looking at what people have created. And well, it's also inspirational because you look at it and think, "Wow, you know, um, all the people who are local can do this. They mm-hmm. did that." And it's it's just uh, it speaks to me when I see other people's art, and it makes me want to create art. You know, so amazing, Susan. Uh, Sometimes on a Saturday or Sunday, we'll have 120 people come into the gallery. And that's a lot of foot traffic. And then on Art Walk night, we have too many people come in. Sometimes on Art Walk night, we'll have four or five, six, something, hundred people coming through there. So that's a lot of exposure for our artists. They get a lot of bang for their buck. But you know, one of the most common questions that people ask when they come in is, are these all local artists? People who visit Mobile, are looking to take something back with them that says Mobile, whether it's the uh, beautiful canopy oak trees or Mardi Gras or gumbo or shrimp or crab, whatever. I mean, you know, it's, it's just really neat to, to see how different people express their view of Mobile and the Southern culture. Uh, I mean, I never called myself an artist, but after I sold about 120 pieces, I said, you know what? I think I can call myself an artist <laughs> Absolutely now. Absolutely, you can. And, and what's, what's fun is to watch other people and to be inspired from them. I, again, um, for example, we have this one gentleman, this one artist who has studied under a couple of local, not local, a couple of uh, uh, global greats. And he wound up in Mobile, Alabama because his grandmother is suffering from cancer. And he is literally a starving artist. He has no source of income, and he lives in a small studio downtown. He, and he walked into the gallery late one night because at first I would stay open until 9, 10 o'clock at, at night on Saturdays before COVID. And he told me his story, and he says, I had to go to uh, Home Depot and Lowe's to buy that rejected paint. And we all know as do-it-yourselfers, when you go to the paint person, you say, I need this color and either we get it wrong or they get it wrong, well, they can't sell it necessarily, so they put it over here, and it's a, usually an unusual color, and they'll sell it for pennies on a dollar. This artist would go and buy those cans of rejected paint. He wouldn't use a brush. He would use a palette knife. He would uh, introduce a medium into this house paint, and the pieces of art that he creates are worthy of hanging up in a museum. I mean, it's just... I mean, he had all that... He's got all the education and experience and passion, but he doesn't have the resources. So when people, you know, we all use the term starving artist with our tongue and our cheek, but it's, in this case, it's a true story. It's like art born out of adversity. Exactly. That's right. Some of the best art. And I think that's one thing that is important. If if there's any message that I think uh, we could get out there to people who are wanting to become artists, who are artists, but they are afraid to share their art is that uh, all artists are inspired by something. Mm-hmm. And until you share your art and put it out there, you don't know. You don't know what you can do or what, what, how people will consume it or how they will appreciate it. That's exactly. the only way to know, really. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things of the art gallery is watching the new artists come in, very timid, very shy, very, oh, it's not going to sell, just very down on themselves. And then they're there for... A month or two, they sell a piece and their whole entire mentality changes, their whole persona, they come out of a box, they just open up and 
they're happy and they're in it to win it. So it's, I love watching self confidence is, is boosted. In fact, Maggie, if you will remember, I'm not going to mention his name right now because I think he might be a, a star on your show at some point. But we had a, a new artist who was probably 40-ish, and he brought his art in for the first time a few days before Art Walk. And I looked at him and I said, your art's going to sell. I just had that feeling. And I'll be darned, that night he sold at least three pieces. So his first art walk, wow. he's only been in the gallery four, four days. We have this other artist. She's 19 years old. And when I tell people that she's 19, they can't believe it. Her subject matter is very mature. It's almost like a Renaissance style to it. And she sells a lot of art. And she lives in a, on a ranch over Mississippi. So it's it's just a, it's such a collective of such um amazing people from all walks of life and of course our number one seller is ching that's mary walters she's an author written about 14 children's books designed about 2,000 postage stamps she's a number one seller month in and month out and she's a very simple but upbeat fun um motif i guess you would say was pelicans and and some wildlife and these pelicans might be Surfers, they might be golfers. They, they're in their Mardi Gras regalia. They're decorated for Christmas, and her her, her work sometimes literally flies off the wall. And well, she's in her seventies, still is very she, prolific. Oh, you would need to have her on her yeah, show. She would absolutely. be absolutely. She's also typically at the gallery for Art Walk. Yeah. So she comes and hangs out with us. She's one of the artists. We are going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how you can get involved with the Lupercalia Art Society. Visit Lupercalia Art Society, an underground speakeasy in the heart of downtown Mobile. Located at 358 Dolphin Street, Lupercalia features over 80 regional artists. There is literally something for every taste. So if you are looking for a unique gift for a friend or something special for your own space, stop by Lupercalia. We tell people that we are drink-friendly, food-friendly, pet-friendly, kid-friendly. We're just downright friendly folks, so nothing stuffy about here. Come on down to 358 Dolphin Street, and be sure to visit us during Art Walk, which is the second Friday of every month from 6 to 9 o'clock, when you can come and meet some of our artists in person and share in the southern spirit that is Luke Percalia. So I've got a question because you, you mentioned it early on. You were talking about the speakeasy and, and you talked about having to, I'm assuming the speakeasy is what you crawled into when you went to go check out the space. So please tell us that story. Yes, Joe. The, uh, the tunnel l- leads to the speakeasy. And of course, for our younger members of the audience, a speakeasy is an illegal bar that existed during the time of prohibition. Prohibition was called the Great Noble Experiment, and it was designed to stop Americans from consuming alcohol. Well, Susan, how did that work out? It did not work so well. It didn't work well, did it? it made people want to consume more. It did, and they went underground in, in their consumption. Literally, 
So Alabama, a lot of people don't realize this, but Alabama was dry, I think, either four or seven years before Prohibition. So we were already somewhat used to uh, hiding our alcohol consumption. And so out of necessity, bars remained open, but they were underground and, and secret. So that's why you had to speak easy because you didn't want the beat cop upstairs to know what was going on. There was no music in, in most speakeasies. And most speakeasies had uh, a little hidden warehouse or tunnels or secret entrances and always an emergency escape plan in case the popo comes marching in with a search warrant. So um, we had a, a 92-year-old businessman and our speakeasy one day, I was in there painting I looked at him and I said, well, Mr. Blank, I bet you remember when this was a speakeasy, don't you? Of course, he was a little bit too young for that. He sucked on his cigar a little bit and looked around and he said, son, I remember when this was a lot worse than a speakeasy. <laughs> and I said, well, do tell. He wouldn't tell. He's taking those secrets to his grave. But we did buy a very red Art Deco lamp from the 1920s in his honor, and we've got that in there. So the speakeasy is where we have an art gallery. It's a showroom, and it's full of art and a lot of photography in there. But on Art Walk nights, the second Friday of every month, we have complimentary beer and wine and drinks for the children. And we also that's where we have our poetry reading for open mic night. And uh, Mobile, actually, according to historians, had about somewhere between six and eight speakeasies at one time, with that being one of them. And... A speakeasy is where both the Protestants and the uh, Catholics would come and share a, a drink. Because, as you know, the Catholics they weren't they didn't have a big problem with drinking. The Protestants had to act like they had a problem with the drinking. <laughs> so they would be in this secret bar sharing a drink, and they would say goodbye to each other, and they would go their separate ways. The Catholics had one entryway, and the Protestants had another. And then when they would see each other on Dolphin Street. A little bit later, they had to tip their hats at each other and give each other the greeting of the day because they weren't supposed to have seen each other at the bar earlier <laughs> that day. So we, we all know what, how that great noble experiment worked out. So, Joe, here's a trivia question for you. Riddle me this. What two things do we have today in the wake of prohibition? We know it's not, not drinking because we still have alcohol, but what do you think we still have today to remind us of those days? That's a great question. I know. Um, well, I guess the remnants of the speakeasy for well, one that, thing. That's true. That's, that's uh, we've that's got true. that. Um, maybe are there still laws on the books about when you can't sell alcohol? Or is there some it, of that? Well, in, in Alabama, being the deep south, yes, there are. In fact, you know, we used to, we still can't purchase alcohol before twelve o'clock on Sundays. I grew up in a in a dry county. And in fact, the county's still dry. The, the little towns are wet, but um, the, uh, certain religious groups, every time it came up for a vote, they would have parades in town and they would get a wrecked car and they'd put it on this flatbed trailer and drive it through town with some young people hanging out the window, <laughs> acting like they're dead and they'd pour ketchup all over them. <laughs> and they'd say, this is what alcohol would do to our kids. Well, what they didn't know is we were going to the other counties getting our alcohol and bringing it back. But <laughs> so... Uh, prohibition failed miserably, but what it did was it uh, made Americans, because you know how we're pretty ingenuitive, and Americans started uh, moonshining and bootlegging. Bathtub uh, gin. Yeah, and then, and of course, you know, moonshiners and bootleggers had to run from the popo and the revenuers, so they had to soup up their vehicles that they hauled their hooch uh, in, and so in between <laughs> batches of hooch, the, you know, men being men, they got bored and they, one of them looked at the other and said, you know, I bet you my hooch mobile outrun your hooch mobile. So they started racing each other in between batches of hooch. And so today we still have NASCAR thanks to, <laughs> to moonshiners and bootleggers in the South. And of course, you know, but before the Canadians started smuggling uh, gin across the border to America, Americans were making bathtub gin. And the uh, get mobsters and gangsters up in the Northeast who, who ran these speakeasies came up with a little concoction called the Bee's Knees. And um, it's a popular cocktail today. The Bee's Knees, of course, is bathtub gin with a little bit of 
lemon, lime, and sugar water and so forth. And the lemon, lime, sugar water is supposed to hide the bathtub taste in the bathtub gin. So that's what we have today with the bee's knees and NASCAR racing, but everybody's still drinking like fish. So. <laughs> that's the story of the speakeasy, Joe. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That was great. Well, I have um, a special place in my heart for the speakeasy at Lupercalia because um, – a little over a year ago, we were invited to start, uh, by Trey, invited to start having an open mic, poetry open mic at Lupercalia. Previously, we had had um, a, a poetry open mic monthly um, closer to campus, but we kind of wanted to, we were looking for a place to sort of branch out after the wake of COVID. Um, I hate to say that C word ever, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we were looking for something different, maybe to take poetry downtown uh, to see what kind of uh, audience we would draw, what kind of people might come in and share. And it has been fabulous. Maggie is a huge cheerleader for us. She's always uh, putting together snacks and promoting us all month long. Uh, but we have uh, such an eclectic group of people. I think that's the best way to describe the people who yes. come to Open Mic. Uh, we've had anywhere from nine-year-olds all the way to, I mean, we've had 90-year-olds uh, sharing their original poetry, uh, writing poetry on the spot that's inspired by the photography and artwork there, um, sharing poetry that they've brought in that other people have written. And it's just been really inspiring. It's really uh, made me feel even more affirmed about the the downtown community and about mobilians in general we've even had quite a few people who were just passing through who were in mobile for the night sure for have. a few days and they they joined us so from across the country and other countries even so that's been really exciting uh and so typically it is the third friday of every month um we take a a little bit of a break during the holidays uh november and december but uh, we just we invite people to come and share their their original works or poems that have inspired them, or just to come and listen to what other people are reading and sharing. Um, we welcome poetry and short prose, and it's just it's such a welcoming community. I know a lot of people have read for the very first time. We're going to get Maggie to do it eventually. But we've had <laughs> one people day, read one day. for the very first time, and they were so nervous. And then uh, by the time they had read one poem and realized how easy it was and how friendly everyone was, they were reading lots of their works. Do you remember that night that uh, there was an acoustic guitar and a young lady sang in front of us? That was so moving and, and beautiful. It was. It was. We've had people bring in... Uh, bring in guitar, bring in uh, a little bit of music and read along with the music. We've had people come in costume that yes, we weren't expecting yes. and that was fun. That was, that. That's been lots of fun. So uh, we usually do it for a couple of hours uh, between six and eight o'clock, the third Friday of, of each month. And I actually want to share one of my poems today. Uh, and hopefully over the course of this podcast, we'll have other writers come and share some of their some of their writing, perhaps some of the uh, featured authors who whose works are featured in the yes. gallery. Um, but this is Life Repurposed. And this is my, my poem about my artist self. The ruddy road jars my gut and I feel uneasy. I'm always uneasy. Always about the business of scattering potholes along my own path. A self-proclaimed word artist, passionate about the wrong things, I fall in love with everything. I'm unable to sleep from the scars on my heart, yet I covet my unrest. I use it to create, to inspire, to feel alive. If my soul is tormented, it's by my own devices, but experience is too good for this business, so I paint a fresh layer and I carry on. Love Word that. artists, heart scars, and potholes in the same point. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for letting me share. Great. Well, I'm wondering if there is anything else that you want to mention in this opening podcast. 
Well, I've got a teaser for Joe. All right. Joe, you're going to have to have us come back on the program because I'm going to tell you, I'm not a big believer in ghosts, but I'm going to have to come back one day to talk to you about the myths, the legends, and the ghosts of Lupercalia. Ooh, I can't wait. Those are my favorite kind of stories. Those are the best. That's a little yes. icing on the cake. It is. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for joining us today in our opening podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Lupercalia Art Society to see what exciting things are going on each month. Maggie keeps everything posted there. So uh, go ahead and follow us on Facebook and tune into our podcast each month as we're joined by local artists and writers who discuss what inspires them to create and share. Hopefully, you'll see something of yourselves in their stories and you'll be inspired to get out there and share your art. Susan and Joe, thank you so much for having us on here. And I think um, just to remind some of our listeners that do not come downtown very much, the Lupercalia Art Society is located at 358 Dauphin Street, and that's right across from the cathedral. So come downtown. Uh, we're open just this time of the year on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and even Sundays. So come downtown for, uh, to experience art deep underground in the heart of downtown. Thank you all so much for having us. Thank you.